This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Welcome to the Eric Erickson Show podcast, Hour 3. Greetings across America. It's Eric Erickson here, and I'm delighted to have you with me. The phone number is 877-973-7425 if you want to be on the program. I, I want to read you a, a portion of a story here. I am fascinated by this. I am just fascinated. This story appears in the San Francisco Chronicle today. And I, I got to imagine um, reading this, ah, the, the, the level of, of ethnic uh, stereotyping, among other things, and, and suggestiveness, but it's also fact-based. Just let me, let me read you the beginning of this. Won't take long. 3,500 miles southeast, that's 3,500 miles for those of you in Rio Linda, southeast of San Francisco, a dirt road in Honduras shared by pickup trucks and ox carts cuts through the mostly abandoned farmland. On the outskirts of a small village, a jewel-toned mural appears like a mirage, the Bay Bridge sparkling at night, stretching across a 10-foot high wall. In a nearby town square, a skinny kid in a Steph Curry t-shirt climbs a tree. A few blocks away, a three-wheeled mototaxi whizzes by, a San Francisco giant sticker affixed to its bumper. More extravagant emblems of San Francisco appear unexpectedly and often alongside crumbling adobe huts, stray roosters and heaps of singed garbage. Handsome new homes, some mansions by local standards, some mansions by anybody's standard, rise behind customized iron gates emblazoned with the San Francisco 49ers logo or the Golden State Warriors logo. One mango-colored mansion is an homage to the city, a Golden Gate Bridge sculpture on the garage door, a San Francisco Giants logo on the balcony ceiling, two 49ers logos on the front gate, and a civic center splayed across its security bars. This is the Sierra Valley, a cluster of villages about 80 miles north of Tegucigalpa in the Francisco Morazan Department of Central Honduras. A typical resident here earns $8 a day doing farm work and scoops buckets of water for showering, washing dishes, and flushing toilets out of a tub known as a pila. The valley is also the hometown 
of a high concentration of people who fleeing poverty and a country with one of the world's highest murder rates migrate to San Francisco, where they ultimately sell drugs, according to an 18-month investigation by the San Francisco Chronicle. The investigation included interviews with 25 Honduran migrants who sell drugs or previously did so, and an extensive review of police data and thousands of court cases. Most Hondurans reach the cities in the Bay Area or elsewhere in the U.S., and they find legal work. But in San Francisco, more than 200 Honduran migrants have been charged with drug dealing since 2022. This number does not include Honduran dealers who were convicted in previous cases or others who've never been arrested. The majority of the Honduran dealers in San Francisco are from the Sierra Valley, according to multiple dealers and court records, with many coming from the same families or having grown up together in the same small villages. One dealer from the Sierra Valley who first arrived in San Francisco in 2004 said that as a child, he would watch as others returned to Honduras after selling drugs in the Bay Area. They were popular because of the cars and the money, so everyone wanted the same, he said. While some current and former dealers said they struggled to eke out a living, others who sell drugs successfully told the Chronicle they could make as much as $350,000 a year or even more if they help run a local operation. At least some of that money sent back to the Valley's villages where it fueled a real estate boom. Valley resident Ophelia Rodales Valrela, 88, said that while many of the migrants from the villages send remittances from legal construction work, in San Francisco and Atlanta, Georgia, they're not the ones building the mansions. There's no other option for them to make a house in that way if it wasn't for selling drugs in the United States. The dealers, some of whom refer to themselves as hondos, are one of the many groups selling drugs in the Bay Area. But they began dominating the open-air drug market in the Tenderloin and south of market neighborhoods during the pandemic, so much so that some dealers complain that the presence of too many countrymen cuts into their earnings. All right. So y'all got to know, I work with a guy, my flagship station, they call him Hondo. <laughs> Hondo, you're on notice. It's also the nickname for the Honduran drug dealers of San Francisco. Well, I am fascinated with this. They all come from the same cluster of villages in Honduras. They get in legally to the United States. These are not illegal immigrants. These are legal immigrants who set up shop in San Francisco selling drugs. The drugs include fentanyl, the cheap, highly addictive synthetic opioid that's driving the current record pace of overdose deaths in San Francisco. Overdoses fueled by the drug have claimed more than 2,200 lives since 2020, 346 in 2023 as of the end of May in just San Francisco. The narcotics that the Honduran cell come from Mexico. They're produced and controlled by the Cyanola and Jalesco New Generation cartels. They ferry them up the West, West Coast. The cartels make the drug and chemicals purchased from China. They transport it to Oakland, California. They distribute it to the Honduran dealers, some of whom ride BART, the San Francisco Transit, um, <laughs> alongside commuters. One Honduran immigrant arrested numerous times for dealing, said from a local jail that he understood the pain the drugs have caused in San Francisco. A week earlier, his brother fatally overdosed. 
I watch the news and I read the newspapers and everything, and I realize that it really is something very difficult. I went through it. We are, so to speak, some nobodies. A retired police officer says the Hondurans have been the drug dealers in the Tenderloin District for 35 years. Now, here's key paragraph, key paragraph, before I jump out of this and, and just into my own thoughts here. Like many other U.S. cities, San Francisco shifted years ago to treating drug use more like a disease than a crime. The heavy policing approach of the war on drugs era failed to slow dealers or decrease demand while overcrowding jails and disproportionately punished people of color. Now, one of the most progressive cities in the nation is fracturing over concerns that it's become too permissive. What to do about the Honduran dealers is a key political issue. So, all right, this is where we get off the crazy train and we just point out they're worried about the disproportionate punishing of people of color. And what do we do about the Hondurans? <laughs> Maybe they're white Latinos. How's about you just enforce all the laws? How's about you treat drug dealers as criminals and the open-air drug users as criminals and you throw them all in jail? Oh, we can't do that. That's so insensitive. Y'all, San Francisco has fallen. And it's not alone. I just keep coming back to this, uh, the Daniel Penny story. He was helping people on the subway who were being harassed by the homeless Michael Jackson impersonator who was insane. He puts the guy in a chokehold, turns him on a side so he doesn't choke. The guy still sadly dies. But Daniel Penny is now the bad guy, and liberal commentary is, well, you don't expect to die on the subway in New York City, but getting accosted by a homeless man, that, that happens all the time on the subway. It shouldn't, though. There's a cost to wokeism. I, I, uh, Joey Jones, he's a commentator on Fox News. He fills in, I think, sometime on the weekend Fox News. Great guy. Uh, lives near noon in Georgia. Uh, really just a, a genuinely great human being, put his life on the line for this country, lost his legs, just a, a, a brilliant person. And he was commenting on crime in New York City versus Noonan, Georgia. And some left-wing commentator said, well, you know, that's not true. The, the per capita crime rate of Noonan, Georgia is much higher than New York City or even San Francisco. Um you do know in New York, they just let everybody go. It's not counted in the crime statistics. In Noonan, they round you all up and lock you in jail. Noonan is a safe place. Is there crime? Yes. And you know the places to avoid. The problem is in New York and San Francisco, one, you can't avoid it. And two, half the people don't even get counted in the crime stats. They've just given up enforcing the law. The left has given up. And so much of it is the failures of their policies. Like, look at affirmative action. There's new polling now, and I think for the Washington Post the other day, that a majority of black Americans, majority of Asian Americans, a majority of Hispanic Americans, and a majority of white Americans support the Supreme Court ruling ending affirmative action. And yet left-wing white progressives are completely freaked out about it, declaring the Supreme Court illegitimate for doing what a majority of Americans want. They want affirmative action 
because they don't want to have to deal with the consequences of their policies. As long as they can continue discriminating against people based on race and allowing minorities into college ahead of other minorities who are uh, less worthy, the left is okay with it. John C. Calhoun would still be a Democrat today. He would love the idea that a non-white person gets to discriminate against another non-white person and rival them together as long as the whites are fine, which is essentially what progressive policy amounts to because the whites get legacy admissions. They have given up. They can't admit their policies failed. They can't admit they screwed these things up. They have screwed up these cities. San Francisco is a fallen city where if you're not stepping on a heroin needle, you're probably stepping on a pile of human poop on the side of the road. And they seem to like it, except they don't live there anymore. They're leaving. There's a massive news story today about the flight of the Alphabet Gang members from Florida, parents with trans kids moving from Florida. Thankfully, they're not coming to Georgia. They're going to New York. They're going to California. They're going to progressive enclaves. They're going to Denver, a lot of them. This is a big story today. People are leaving Florida. Net population decline. Not by much. A couple hundred thousand people. California is losing millions. San Francisco is becoming in parts of it a ghost town as people are packing up and leaving. You have white, rich, progressive enclaves in San Francisco, and then you have the squalid poor in terrible conditions. There's no middle class anymore. They've been priced out of the market. They're scared to stay there. And the left looks at this. They don't see a problem. Police are bad. The lawbreakers are good. The intersectional alphabet soup of nonsensical uh, diversity issues, they've got to be fought for. San Francisco Police Chief Bill Scott said there's no value in studying the demographics of potential offenders. We do not consider race or nationality in how we police, he said. We focus on behavior. If we see someone selling drugs, we're going to arrest them. You know, not saying racial profiling is a good thing. I'm not. But as Mayor Bloomberg, who continued Rudy Giuliani's crime policies, as New York noted, you're not racially profiling. When you see a young man walking down a street in certain neighborhoods, the odds are he has a gun on him illegally. You stop and frisk. You take the gun away. It just so happens that disproportionately in these particular neighborhoods, he's black. That's not a racial profiling. That's a profiling of the young men walking down the streets in these neighborhoods who disproportionately carry illegal firearms. They just happen to be black. The left sees this as racial profiling. The data is, no, we're profiling young men regardless of race. There just aren't a lot of white people around there. Same thing here. You're profiling the drug dealers who work in certain areas of the city, including the Tenderloin area. The odds are they're Honduran. But they don't want to go after them because they're afraid of racial profiling. They're so afraid of making race an issue, they're letting their city collapse. Racism is bad. But when all the drug dealers in a part of the city happen to be Honduran, and you see Honduran in the open square there, they might just be a drug dealer. You're not racially profiling. You're profiling based on the patterns and behaviors of people. The left has gone so intersectional, they're willing to allow the collapse of cities around the country. And as these cities collapse, they want you to know that your rural town has a higher per capita crime rate because you got five people and one person committed a crime that was a minor crime as opposed to in New York where you fear for your life now on the subway. They cannot admit their policies cause these failures, and they'd rather abandon the cities and force you and me to live there then acknowledge maybe they need to rethink their policies.
Greetings. Welcome. Eric Erickson here. The phone number 877-973-7425. I've only got a short segment here, so be patient with me on the phones. I got to read you this. (laughs) Climate change. Let me turn the recorder on. Philip, you're going to want this one. This is a report from the London Guardian, a left-leaning newspaper. Climate change over the next 20 years could result in a global catastrophe costing millions of lives in wars and natural disasters. A secret report suppressed by U.S. defense chiefs and obtained by The Observer warns that major European cities will be sunk beneath rising seas as Great Britain is plunged into a Siberian climate. Nuclear conflict, mega droughts, famine, and widespread riots will erupt around the world. The document predicts that abrupt climate change could bring the planet to the edge of anarchy as countries develop a nuclear threat to defend and secure dwindling food, water, and energy supplies. The threat to global stability vastly eclipses that of terrorism, say the few experts privy to its contents. Now, I left out a key detail. Let me read you the key paragraph again with the detail in it. A secret report suppressed by U.S. defense chiefs and obtained by the observer warns that major European cities will be sunk beneath rising seas as Britain is plunged into a Siberian climate by 2020. That's right. This is a 19-year-old news story from February 22nd, 2004, about the secret report from the Bush administration that Great Britain would be a Siberian climate. Great Britain would be freezing by 2020 and that major European cities would be underwater by 2020. And all of these activists were upset Already, according to two people involved, the planet is carrying a higher population than it can sustain. By 2020, catastrophic shortages of water and energy supply will become increasingly harder to overcome, plunging the planet into war. They warned that 8,200 years ago, climate conditions brought widespread crop failure, famine, disease, and mass migration of populations that could be repeated by 2020. Um... Well, here we are in 2023. Great Britain is not Siberia. Europe is not underwater. And we don't have a bunch of countries building nuclear weapons to fight off people wanting their food. This maybe should suggest we don't listen to the climate hysterics who want us all in battery-powered cars and windmills in our backyards. Greetings, my friends. How are you? It's Eric Erickson here. Delighted to have you with me. The phone number is 404. Oh, wait, wrong number. (laughs) <laughs> you almost got my cell phone. <laughs> it's 877-973-7425. Now, let's go to Robert. Welcome to the show, Robert. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing today, sir? Good. Right What's on. going on? Um, yeah, I just wanted to comment on uh, the Honduran situation in California. Um, I moved from the Bay Area in 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic, essentially to get away from the extremely high cost of living out there, um, just a high-stress environment. Um, 
But for the most part, uh, you know, the drug situation in San Francisco, the homelessness situation, the mental health situation has been perpetually getting worse for many years. It's been exasperated by COVID um, almost to the point where I do agree with what you mentioned, that San Francisco is essentially collapsing. And, uh, you know, the the state of uh, society out there is is getting pretty rough. So I I, I appreciate your uh, analysis and... uh, uh, well, you know, attention okay. to what's so, going on on the West Coast. So, Robert, can you just now? Where did you move to from the Bay Area? Yeah, I moved out here to Decatur. Okay, all right. So, can you talk as someone who lived there about the cost of living in San Francisco? Because, because I've read about it. I've had friends who've experienced it. I have friends who are still struggling to live out there. Um, but and I don't know that a lot of people really understand just how expensive it is to live out there. Yeah, I mean, I was born and raised out there, um, lived there through the 80s and 90s um, and 2000s and have seen, uh, you know, my hometown, which is in the East Bay near Oakland, um, just get to the point where. You know, whatever kind of American dream situation there might have been in the past is really almost out the window where homes that might cost 300 to $400,000 out here are costing, you know, 900 to $1.4 million out there. Um, cost of gas, just cost of food, cost of living in general is, is way high and almost unsustainable for your average person. I've got a friend of mine whose sister's a farmer in Northern California and he said that that she is exasperated by the cost of diesel for her tractor, uh, that it, it has driven up the cost of the food that she sells just because the cost of, of fuel for the tractor is so expensive. It just, I mean, it's also, oh, yeah. I mean, I, mean you, I think, you know, once you get outside the cities, uh, agriculture is still a huge thing out there, but I know everybody's being pushed to their limits in terms of how much it costs to operate their businesses. Well, but also, you know, you, you got to acknowledge too, it is gorgeous out there. It is just one of the just delightful weather and just gorgeous places. And I, I've I've been to Half Moon Bay twice, and my goodness, it's just an incredible place. Absolutely. I mean, that's kind of some of my old stomping grounds. I love surfing. I love the coast. Um, something I definitely miss. Um, you know, it's this extremely diverse area too. There's like forty languages spoken in my high school when I graduated. Um, so there is a lot of, you know, very rich culture, but with that and tying back into the Honduras situation, you know, there's been Mexican factions, um, El Salvadorian factions dealing drugs around the Bay Area for many decades. So, I mean, I think you got folks coming in to capitalize on an already bad situation. Um, but yeah. California yep. is beautiful. I mean, Georgia is beautiful in its own way as well. So, Well, listen, I appreciate you listening, and, and thanks for the phone call, um, and, and thanks for humoring me with, with my question. Sure. It is kind of sad, just as an aside to Robert's point, Denver, Colorado is a gorgeous place. It's to the San Francisco Bay Area. Gorgeous. And and progressive policies. Are just it, it's. I was in Denver, uh, what, um, two months ago? Had to go out there and give a speech, and I didn't get to stay long, and, and I regret it because I do like to go out there. But Denver is just, it's like the city's become a slum. It's its horrible. The amount of homelessness on the streets, the amount of open drug use, and of course, Denver's very permissive with drugs, arguably more permissive than San Francisco these days with um, 
legal psychedelic mushrooms, uh, marijuana. It 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 just that place is becoming so progressive. You know what's interesting? I mentioned this. The number of people. Uh, from progressive households who identify as as they've got trans kids or the like, or they're worried about it, moving a lot of them are moving to Denver. It's becoming a more Colorado becoming more and more of a progressive state. You have some conservative strongholds like Colorado Springs, but even there, um, not as not as conservative as it once was. And then you've got the the San Francisco Bay. If you've never been out there, it really is a gorgeous place. You got the mountains, uh, the Golden Gate Bridge. You got Half Moon Bay. I, I had to go speak at a uh, American Bar Association conference. This has now been oh, probably six years ago. Uh, this is after one of the big wildfires, and I got invited to go speak at a conference on the First Amendment. Uh, having been in the media law and stuff, they asked me to come out, and I wasn't practicing at the time. Uh, but I went out. It was at. Um, MacArthur Place, which is a fancy resort in Napa Valley. And it was a beautiful drive from the San Francisco airport up to Napa. I was a little bit intimidated by the traffic. It wasn't bad. Went over the the Bay Bridge there into Oakland, drove up through Berkeley and the coast up to Napa. It's gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous country. And they messed up my reservation. And I was supposed to be there for two days. And my flight was arranged for not the next day, but two days later. But they didn't actually have me staying the second day. So I was like, no big deal. I want to go see Half Moon Bay. And I stayed. uh, They were able to move me and and get me a hotel room. There's this big Ritz-Carlton there. And so uh, the American Bar Association paid for me to stay at a Ritz-Carlton for one day. It was the drive, first of all, was gorgeous. Uh, And Half Moon Bay was incredible. I'd love to take my family out there. But it just... uh, the homeless population, the drugs, you get to Half Moon Bay, it's really not that bad. It's more like a small, almost like, like I mean, it's rich people and farmers. But going through San Francisco is just miserable, and it's a gorgeous city. Gorgeous city. And it's just run into the dirt. It's sad to see. Really sad to see. Now, we got other stuff we, we got to talk about. Um, we, we can't just talk about that. And one of the things I do want to talk about, and this actually, it relates not just to San Francisco, but other big cities. The Wall Street Journal has this story. Bosses are pushing back on workers who won't come back to the office. Office attendance is slumping again, and bosses have a warning. We are a worse company when you stay home. In buildings across eight, 10 Major U.S. cities, office occupancy has fallen back below 50% for the past three weeks, according to Castle Systems, which tracks security swipes into offices. The drop comes despite new return-to-office mandates that affect more than 600,000 workers. Hundreds of Wall Street Journal readers, many of them bosses and team leaders, responded to our story on the workers who say it's not my responsibility to save the office economy. Those bosses say employees who insist they're more productive while working from home are missing the larger picture. Team productivity is taking a hit. The purpose of an office is to create a dynamic environment where people feed on one another's energy, bond on a personal level, and explore ideas in unstructured ways, many company leaders said. Remote work can't provide those kinds of casual interactions that build culture and camaraderie, they said, which means it's worse for the organization and, in many cases, individual careers, too. Now, I I, I am biased towards an office. I worked as a lawyer for five years in an office. I've... I, I've, though I've spent 15, 20 years working out of my house, 
I'm now in an office, and I'm the only one here. I've got uh, – there are offices in my office for other people um, who occasionally show up. And given what I do for a living, it doesn't really matter. We've always kind of worked remotely. We have daily Zoom calls and the like. and and But for a lot of offices, that office collaboration really is important. Apple uh, has started forcing their workers to come back, and they've had a lot of people quit who don't want to go back to the office, and they're like, uh, tough. Why? Because the inner office collaboration matters. But not only that, I, I, for those of you who aren't working in offices, you're working from home, that may be fine in your job situation, and I, I don't really care. But I, I do hope you understand for some of you who are working from home, if you're going to the office, it's better for your career because you are seen and not forgotten. You are engaged not just with coworkers, but management sees you engaging. So when the next round of layoffs come, who do you think is going to get laid off first? The people who are in the office or the people who have decided to stay home? You know, one of my concerns, um, so my flagship station, WSB, they shut down the office uh, during COVID like everybody else did. And then they started allowing people back into the office. But they were very cautious with letting people come back into the office during COVID. And I sent an email to the boss and who was, was very responsive of it. And I said, you know, there are people who believe they need to be at the office to be seen. And there are people who are scared to death of this virus right now, and they're not going to come to the office. And if we go through layoffs or promotions or what have you, I just hope we're all mindful of the fact that there are people who, because of the virus, because of their health, because of concerns, and because they're not incentivized to come, they're going to stay home and they don't get penalized because of it. And and my company, Cox Media Group, was very accommodating to that fact uh, and was not penalizing employees who stayed home. And sales teams, you know, sometimes you want to be in the office, you want to be seen making the sale, and, and a lot of people were discouraged. They locked me out of the office. To my knowledge, I, I think I'm the only employee who they took away my key card access because my boss at the time uh, understood that I don't like to take time off. I'm actually ironically saying this is about to miss the next two Fridays, but I really don't like to take a ton of time off. And they knew during COVID I was going to work the whole time. They didn't want me coming to the office. They wanted to disincentivize it. So they shut me out of the office because otherwise they knew I'd be commuting back and forth to Atlanta all the time to go to the office. They wouldn't let me come. I, I, I felt a little hurt, but also I kind of got it. Um, now, however, we are multiple years through. It's like seeing people in masks still. It's like, why are you still living in the past? Some people, their security blanket. Um, you can tell a liberal these days, they're the ones in the masks. But nonetheless, I digress. There are a lot of people who got out of the habit of going to work and they don't want to go back to work. There are a lot of young people in particular who think that they're more productive working from home. And I don't know that they actually are. What I do know, however, is that there are a lot of young people in the country right now who are penalizing themselves. They're not in the office collaborating, so they're not a part of the team. So their work product isn't viewed as worthy, and they don't realize it's happening. But there's something else, too. I try to go to my office in Atlanta once every other week, I've actually, it's been a couple of weeks because I've been traveling and it's been the holiday period, but I try to get up there at least every other week just to see and be seen 
because there's also something about the value of the interaction with with colleagues, not because you want to brown nose, not because you want people to remember you exist. They, 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 my face is all over the place. They can't ignore the fact that I'm, uh, that I'm on the radio there, but there's something to be seen for just sitting down in the office with someone who's been there for 20 years when you have it and getting their take on things and picking their brain. I've got a new boss, uh, at, at my flagship station, Ken, I love to go sit in that man's office and just talk radio. Just talk about the the business of radio because he's been around for a long time. You know, you know the, the the Rush Radio back in the day. You had had the the branding of Rush Radio. He came up with that idea. Uh, the man knows talk radio. I love just to talk about talk radio, the dynamics of it. Rush Limbaugh and I used to do this a lot. We would talk a lot about the theory of talk radio. What goes into it? What makes it good? How do you do it? How do you not do it? What works? What doesn't? What could be changed? What should be tested? What are our theories? You don't get that a lot uh, unless you have solid relationships, and you build those solid relationships by being in the office. This has nothing to do with the office economy. It has nothing to do with saving landlords who are about to go bankrupt because they got all these empty skyscrapers. This has everything to do with you, your work product, your work ethic, and your ability to advance in your career. For your own good, you should be going to the office to see and be seen and also to develop those mentor relationships with people who know more than you do. That's something we always forget, particularly when you when you get into your 30s in particular. When you get into your 30s, when you've been in an office for about five to 10 years, your, your mid-30s, you don't really realize anymore that you still got stuff to learn, but you do. And it's important to be in the office surrounded by the people who are in their 50s and 60s who've learned all the things you're about to have to learn. There's a value in in the office space. There really is a value. I, I love being back in an office. I, I I got a desk built by there's a guy Sons of Sawdust, um, a brilliant guy, and and I asked him to commissioned him to build my desk. He was tearing down a factory in Nashville. It's the factory where they built the socks for the astronauts who went to the moon. This factory in World War II opened their doors to Jews fleeing Europe and gave them jobs so they could immigrate into this country to spare them the Holocaust. And, and the factory, the old factory is being torn down, and he used the steel from the factory for the legs and the wood from the walls for the desk, and it has this unique story to it. And, and I love having that in the office, and I love having people in the office. There's just something about being in an office to connect with people, to learn from people, and also to advance your career. Don't underestimate that being a real big, important part. Those of you remotely working, if you got an office space, you probably want to go see and be seen there every once in a while. It's good for your career. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. Y'all, this is uh, this is just too funny. Uh, NYU, New York University, has hosted a whites-only anti-racism workshop for public school parents. <laughs> you had to be white to attend. They wouldn't let you in if you weren't white. The all-white seminar from integration to anti-racism cost $360 to attend and met six times between February and June, according to a description of the program that has since been scrubbed from the university's website without explanation. Organized by NYU Steinhardt School of Education, the workshop was designed specifically for white public school parents committed to becoming anti-racist and building multiracial parent communities. But to promote solidarity with the races, participants were told it was necessary that it be whites only. (laughs) 
why a white space was one of the handouts to explain why we're meeting as white folks for these, not white people, but white folks. The, don't you love folks has become just, just a catch-all word now. For these six months, the handout produced by the Nonprofit Alliance of White Anti-Racists Everywhere argues white people need spaces where they can unlearn racism without subjecting minorities to undue trauma or pain. Hey, can I just ask who went? Who are the white people who forked over $360 to go hang out at a would-be Klan rally to learn how to not be a KKK member? (laughs) This is absolutely, by the way, um, a violation of civil rights law. A a whites-only program at a public university is not legal, and they did it anyway because they didn't want non-white people to be triggered when the whiteies were talking about what it's like to be white and and, and, and coming to terms with their innate racism. Oh, my gosh. Again, I really – I would love to meet – I have a stereotypical image of the white person who would attend this, and I guarantee you – that the person who attended looks, you know, the those those glasses that the, they had wireframe glasses that were like pink or something, and wild hair, and and they wore sandals, um, you know it, and their children are trans or well, they they just they don't know what their children are yet because the children haven't identified yet. Uh, you, you know the sorts of whitey who would go to this. My goodness gracious! Instead of having a saltine cracker there, it was some sort of wheat thin or something. <laughs> just. Who would pay $360 to be lectured on their innate racism? Only in New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco. Progressives do, progressives, goodness.